This week, we're talking about diabetes. First, a study about mortality in diabetes. And second, a comparative analysis of DPP4 inhibitors versus sulfonylureas for treating patients with type 2 diabetes. Hello and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine hosted online at healthydebate.ca. My name is Amol Verma. I'm a resident in general internal medicine at the University of Toronto, and I am thrilled to be joined today by Dr. Rena Patani, who is a general internist at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. Hey, Rena, how's it going? Good, thanks. How are you? Excellent. So today, Rena and I are talking all about diabetes so, Rena, why don't you just jump right in and kick us off. Tell me about this large study about mortality and diabetes. Thanks, Amol. So, as you said, I'm here to talk about a paper called Excess Mortality Among Persons with Type 2 Diabetes, published in the New England Journal on October 29, 2015. To start off with the bottom line, this study showed that adult patients with type 2 diabetes in Sweden have an excess mortality, meaning an increased relative risk of death from all causes, of about 15% compared to the general population. So this is a study that Tancredi et al. undertook in order to look at what the risk is of dying, either from any cause or from specifically cardiovascular causes, among patients living with type 2 diabetes. Okay, perfect. And so what was the rationale for looking specifically at mortality? I feel like, you know, what is there more to know about mortality and diabetes? Diabetes increases your risk of mortality. Why is this such an important paper? Well, I think um, obviously mortality is a a hard outcome that we're all interested in. It's clinically significant for patients and care providers. Um, and moreover, there's been a lot of work on this very subject in the past 15 years, including a paper in the New England Journal in 2011 that showed that pa- patients with type 2 diabetes suffer from um, higher rates of death from all causes, not just cardiovascular causes, including malignancy, infections, which may relate to some immune dysregulation. So um, this is sort of an update on that on that data. It's a much more robust data set that these investigators used. And um, it also helped to clarify whether there are specific subsets of patients, um, either based on A1C or the presence or absence of other um, coexisting diseases or even age that may modulate um, this risk of death. Okay. So it's obviously this is going to be a nuanced analysis, basically, with a very rich data set. So tell me, how did they do this study? Okay, so um, this was an observational study um, looking at information from um, various registries in, in Sweden. Sweden actually captures a lot of robust data about its citizens. And so essentially the authors looked at the Swedish National Diabetes Registry, which was created in 1996. And they searched for um, patients in that registry who had diabetes. Um, and just to, to indicate how robust that it is, about 90% of the Swedish, Swedish population with type 2 diabetes was, is a part of this registry. These were all adults age 18 years and older who provided informed consent to be a part of the registry. And so each of these patients were matched with five controls in the general population um, based on age, sex, and the county in which they reside. And that registry was then linked to other data sets that they have, including um, a database in which they capture information about cause-specific mortality, another database in which they capture data about inpatient visits, 
And um, finally, a database that looks at some socioeconomic demographic information, um, as well as prescription drugs. Okay, so linked uh, population-based data sets. The thing that blows my mind is the ability to consent 90% of the diabetic population in a country. That's super impressive. So tell me, Rena, what, uh, what were their methods for this study? So basically, they wanted to take each of the patients with type 2 diabetes and compare against controls the rates of um, all-cause mortality, rates of cardiovascular mortality, and then they stratified each of those outcomes by age, hemoglobin A1c, and renal function. So each of the patients and controls were followed essentially from the baseline, which would be the time at which they were entered into the National Diabetes Registry, through to either December 31, 2011, or the occurrence of death. Okay. And so uh, what did they find? So just to give you a snapshot of what these patients looked like, um, this is sort of the table one of the paper. Overall, the two groups were reasonably similar. Um, the average age of the patients was about 66 years old. 45% of them were women. Um, interestingly, among the group of patients with diabetes, they were more likely to be immigrants rather than to be born within Sweden, um, and slightly less likely than the control group to have a university education. The mean A1C among the patients with diabetes was about 7.1%, so not too bad. And the duration for which they'd had diabetes was about six years. The majority of patients with diabetes, about 80% of them, were treated with only diet or oral medications. And um, other than that, though, the risk factor control was imperfect, with um, a majority of patients not reaching specifically an LDL target. The, the mean was about 294 or a blood pressure target for patients with diabetes, the mean being about uh, systolic blood pressure of 140 in this group. And patients with diabetes were more likely than the control group to have coexisting conditions like a history of myocardial infarction, um, history of AFib, CHF, stroke, so, which is not, not unexpected. Right, so not surprisingly, the diabetes patients were sicker than the non-diabetes patients. I guess also not surprising that they have different social makeup than the diabetes patient than the non-diabetic patients. Yeah, definitely. Um, but I should say also that because this we're looking at data sets and um, information from the registry, and we're lacking individual level data, we don't actually have the same robustness of information about the control group. So, for example, we don't know mean blood pressures, LDLs in the control group. So that does make it hard, in some sense, to really neatly compare the two populations. Okay, uh, and so tell me what they found about mortality. So um, they had excellent follow-up, about 4.6 years on average in the type 2 diabetes group and about 4.8 years in the control group. And what they found was that um, in terms of death from all causes, there was about a 17.7% rate of death among patients with type 2 diabetes in contrast to a 14.5% rate of death among the controls. And in terms of an adjusted hazard ratio, that amounts to 1.15, or um, an absolute excess of about 3% of death among patients with type 2 diabetes, or an excess or relative risk of death of about 15%. So um, help me understand if that number is expected to you or surprising. So one comment I'll make is that this was this was all comers. We haven't stratified yet by age, by A1C, by the presence or absence of renal dysfunction. 
So I think it was expected for all comers that there is an excess mortality associated with having type 2 diabetes, but um, it's actually much lower than has been previously reported in other studies. So an excess mortality of 15% in this, in this paper should be contrasted against excess mortalities of anywhere from 50 to 100% that have been reported in studies over the last 15 years. Which is interesting because I think it maybe points to some secular trends in the improvement of guideline-based care. Well, so is it secular trends? So did they examine the change over time within this population? They did, actually. So they looked at um, what the relative risk of death was in the first half compared to the second half of the study period, which, to remind you, was between 1998 and 2011. And in the first half, the excess mortality was about 17%, contrasted against the second half in which it was 13%. So even just within that time period, we're seeing potentially greater uptake of evidence-based therapeutics. So that's interesting whether that you're attributing it to greater uptake of evidence-based therapeutics or guideline recommended care. Um, so let so the observation is that mortality from diabetes has decreased over this like t- 10, 15 year time period in Sweden. Um, and I guess I would push back on two points. So one is that Even at the beginning of this study, the mortality was quite low compared to some of what the rates that you were quoting otherwise, right? So this was 17%, not 50 or 100% to begin with. And so I would wonder whether that's that's a population level, you know, uh, difference. And I wonder if it's looking, you know, if you're looking in other populations, whether it's other countries, you know, other groups of people where the mortality is a lot higher. So, um, yeah, so that's the first point. There is no doubt about that. Like, I think this, we can't necessarily assume that this this paper is generalizable or externally valid, um, especially because Sweden has a very um, impressive universal system of healthcare, which includes not just uh, routine care, but emergency room visits, inpatient visits, prescription drugs. Um, and it's actually a, um, even more, uh, it actually encompasses a lot more services than most other universal systems. So there may be other factors, there's no doubt. Yeah, and so let me push back on your second point in your glowing review of the Swedish healthcare system, which I'm sure it's lovely. (laughs) Um, But what we know from this study is that uh, these patients weren't meeting their guideline recommended targets, right? So you can't necessarily attribute the relatively low rates of uh, death to meeting blood pressure targets or meeting cholesterol targets. You're right, and that's fair, except um, I'm going to push back a bit as well and just say that um, if you kind of dig a little bit deeper in the paper, we won't go into the exact figures, but even across each of the age categories, um, less than 55, 55 to 64, 65 to 74, 74, uh, age 75 and above, Within each of those categories, patients with type 2 diabetes were were much more likely to be on statins, to be on ACE inhibitors or ARBs compared to uh, the general population. Um, And that was anywhere from eight times higher within the lower age groups to, I can't remember the exact figure, but something like greater than 20 times higher. Um, likelihood among the elder patients. Yeah, but that's not surprising because they have an indication for those drugs. Like the general population doesn't have an, necessarily have an indication for those medications, right? 
They don't necessarily, but as I said in the table one, we don't have the individual level data. So we don't know what the um, average LDL and systolic blood pressure was in the general population. So we can't make as clean a comparison there. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'll reveal my bias, which is that I think the the argument that I'm hinting at is I, I want I suspect that a lot of these are determinants of mortality that are not directly related to processes of care, but might be related to things like socioeconomic status access to, you know, welfare state, food, all the other things that in some ways aren't captured in this study, but maybe, you know, Denmark is also, oh, sorry, maybe Sweden, I get all my Scandinavian countries confused, you know, is also very good at providing some of those other, uh, those other services. I I can appreciate that, except remember that between the two groups, patients with type 2 diabetes were more likely to be immigrants and less likely to be university educated. Yeah. Um, and yet, um, we haven't even gotten into the details about how mortality changed with age yet. Well, let's do that. So tell me, what are the, the groups who are at higher risk of mortality or lower risk of mortality? Because I think that's one of the most interesting findings in this paper. Absolutely. So um, I'll start with the two really obvious ones. So as A1C rose... Um, obviously mortality increased among patients with type 2 diabetes. As renal dysfunction became um, worse, outcomes were worse among patients with type 2 diabetes. So those are sort of the obvious ones that are intuitive. But the one that was really interesting was that age seemed to negatively correlate with excess mortality. So... Okay, so tell tell me what that means. So what that means is that for patients who had normal albuminuria and had on target A1C, less than 6.9. If you were less than 55, the hazard ratio for death with type 2 diabetes compared to control was 1.6. However, if you were greater than 75, the hazard ratio was 0.76, almost looking like there's a protective effect. So let's unpack that. So people who are less than 55 uh, have increased risk of death if they have type 2 diabetes, even though their blood sugar is well controlled and their kidney function is normal. Whereas older people who have type 2 diabetes have basically normal or even lower rates of death than the general population compared to age and sex matched controls, basically. That's exactly right, which is, in my view, counterintuitive. I would agree. So, um, How do we explain this counterintuitive finding? So it's hard to know for sure, but I think one of the hypotheses that was advanced by these authors was that um, among older populations, these patients, as we've been discussing, were more likely to have better treatment of their other vascular risk factors. So potentially by virtue of being flagged as someone who is high risk, since they have type 2 diabetes, these are the patients who are more likely to be on a statin, more likely to be on an ACE inhibitor. Just to give you an idea, about 65% of them would be on a statin, same percentage on RAS blockade, in contrast to about 25 to 30% of the patients in the general population in each of these age groups. So potentially it was tighter control of risk factors overall. But I'll add the caveat that, again, we don't have any of that baseline individual level data. This is an observational study. So there definitely could be unmeasured confounders here. And it might just be that the 75-year-olds with type 2 diabetes had other things contributing to longevity that we're just not accounting for. Tell me what you think then is the 
uh, are the takeaway points from this study? Because there's obviously a lot here. Okay, so I think the major takeaway point here is that in Sweden, among adult patients with type 2 diabetes, there is an excess mortality um, compared to the general population, but that that excess mortality appears to be at a historic low, which is great news. And I think um, looking at both that global conclusion as well as some of the subgroup analyses that were done here, I think it's cause for us to be very optimistic at the patient level. I think patients should feel good about the fact that, and we should be telling them that they should feel good about the fact that with good risk factor modification, they can really experience longevity. The, the, the other point I'll take away from this is that uh, risk of mortality in diabetes patients is not homogenous and that there is a lot of heterogeneity within groups. And, you know, th that's fodder for a lot of both clinical and, and scientific work to try and figure out who are the people who are at higher risk and how do we, you know, treat them more aggressively, perhaps, while uh, treating the people who are at lower risk less aggressively. Okay, perfect. Thanks so much, Rena. So let's move from that global high-level discussion to a little bit more focused of a topic, but also about diabetes. So I wanted to talk about a study that was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine. So this was an observational study that showed that in patients with type 2 diabetes, when combined with metformin as the first-line treatment, DPP-4 inhibitors were associated with better patient outcomes than was treatment with sulfonylureas. And specifically, those outcomes were mortality, stroke, and hypoglycemic episodes. So um, interesting paper, Amol. Tell us a bit about why you chose this. Yeah, I think I chose this for several reasons. The first is we're doing a diabetes theme today. But the uh, more specific reason why I wanted to talk about this study is because guidelines around the world uh, suggest that metformin is the best first-line oral agent for treating patients with type 2 diabetes. But what's the best second-line drug is uh, quite unclear, and sulfonylureas are currently the most commonly prescribed second-line drug. Uh, but it's not clear whether we should perhaps be using sulfonylureas or other agents. Okay, and out of curiosity, just to get our biases or predispositions out on the table, do you have a favored second agent out of after metformin? I don't. I have to say that, you know... As a hospitalist uh, internist, usually I'm modifying regimens rather than sort of starting new therapies. So usually I'll tend to continue patients on what they come in on. But I'm comfortable often with specific types of sulfonylureas for sure. And then I would say probably the next one I, I would reach for would be a DPP-4 inhibitor. Okay, great. And just because all the acronyms and everything are so crazy, maybe you could just tell us what the DPP-4 inhibitors actually are? Yeah, so um, both sulfonylureas and DPP-4 inhibitors increase insulin secretion. The big difference is that DPP-4 inhibitors function in a glucose-dependent manner, meaning that they increase insulin more when glucose levels are higher by acting through incretins. Uh, and the class of drugs that we're talking about here are basically called uh, the glyptins. So cetagliptin, saxagliptin, lenagliptin, that kind of uh, uh, drug. And the sulfonylureas are the ides, I guess. So it's like gliburide, glyclozide, glimepiride, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, sounds good. So why don't you tell us a bit about the methods? Yeah, so the purpose of this study was to compare all-cause mortality 
major cardiac events, including stroke and uh, MI, and hospitalizations for heart failure or hypoglycemia. So those were their out outcomes. Uh, in patients who received either a sulfonylurea or a DPP-4 inhibitor as their second line treatment for type 2 diabetes. So they used, similar to your uh, Swedish registry paper, this was a large administrative data set that looked at the Taiwan Universal Health Insurance Plan, which has pretty much full coverage of a population of nearly 23 million people. They looked at patients between 2009 and 2012 who were started on metformin for the first time. And then the, those patients were enrolled in the study when they were also prescribed either a DPP-4 inhibitor or a sulfonylurea. As additional therapy. That's right, as the second line agent. So all of the patients had metformin as a first line therapy, and then some had DPP-4 as second line or sulfonylurea as second line. So they performed a propensity-matched analysis to try and see what the effect was of DPP-4 versus sulfonylurea on those outcomes that I talked about. What they found initially with the DPP-4 inhibitor was that that group was older, they had more comorbid illness, and that they had a longer duration of diabetes. So they used those things to create a propensity score, and then they matched uh, the sulfonylurea patients with the DPP-4 inhibitors so that those characteristics ultimately did not vary between the groups. So they picked out a cohort of about 20,000 people, roughly 10,000 in each group, and after matching, the DPP-4 inhibitor patients were no longer older no longer had more comorbidity and no longer had a longer duration of diabetes. Okay, sounds good. Okay, so here's what they found. They basically found that the patients who were treated with DPP-4 inhibitors had lower rates of death. So in the DPP-4 group, the death rate was 5.6% over three years, as opposed to in the sulfonylurea group, it was about 7.3% over three years. So that gives a number needed to treat of 59 patients over three years to prevent one death. They also found lower rates of stroke and lower hypoglycemic episodes in the DPP-4 inhibitor group, whereas the risks for MI and heart failure hospitalization were similar between the groups. So I guess that's pretty comforting because DPP-4 inhibitors have gotten a bit of flack for potentially increasing the rate of heart failure in other studies. Yeah, you bring up a good point. So there was this one study called the Timmy Saver study, which uh, showed maybe an increased association with uh, heart failure in the DPP-4 inhibitors. And I think a series of observational analyses since then have shown that that's probably not a real association. Okay. So then um, what do you buy this? Does, is it plausible to you? Do you yeah, think so, this is a strong study? Yeah. So, so this is uh, the, the million dollar question, I guess, is are DPP-4 inhibitors really better than... Uh, sulfonylureas, and can we believe these findings? Um, so I'm going to direct our listeners' attention, if they're so inclined, to a really good paper in the Annals of Internal Medicine called uh, The Predicament of Comparative Effectiveness Research Using Observational Data. So basically, when we're comparing two therapies that have both been shown to be effective against placebo, you need pretty high numbers to tease out relatively small differences between the two, right? And so to do 
uh, randomized control trial, which would be the ideal way of testing this question, it would be very expensive. It would take a lot of effort and it would be a huge uh, study. So often we're left doing these observational analyses. But the problem with these observational analyses is that there is a lot of potential for bias. And the main source of bias is, like we talked about with your study, all the unmeasured confounders. Mm -hmm. So we don't really know, are, are the differences that we're seeing because of this drug or because of differences in the groups? So in this case, you, we knew that at the beginning the groups were different. So we did this propensity matching, but does that really get rid of all the differences between the groups? And the other thing that we that was not even discussed at all in this study was uh, the providers that were... So is there a difference between the type of physician that's going to prescribe a sulfonylurea versus um, a DPP-4 inhibitor? Maybe that physician is you know, more likely to be a subspecialist who provides a DPP-4 inhibitor, or maybe they're more likely to be, you know up-to-date or current with new practice or something. Who knows, right? So that's the so that's the predicament. So your question was, is this a high-quality study? Absolutely. So really high-quality uh, analytic methods. You know, they did their best. But can you account for the missing data, no matter how strong your analytic methods are? I don't know, right? So you tell me. So you hear this study. Would you change your practice based on this? I mean, I guess sometimes I like to fall back on biologic plausibility when there's, and maybe I'm just trying to be um, self-validating because I, I like the conclusion this is arriving at. I find that the sulfonylureas do have the clinically important consequence of hypoglycemia. And so if you think about the biologic plausibility of why patients might do better on the glyptins because of reduced rates of hypoglycemia, it, it is compelling. So I feel like despite the limitations that you're voicing, um, I think given the constraints of doing the types of studies we want to do, the the lack of feasibility on doing it, I, I would probably buy buy into this trial, buy into this study. Yeah, so I agree with you. I think that I probably would err on the side of using as a second-line agent a DPP-4 inhibitor over a sulfonylurea, although increasingly, especially with this new study that we recently talked about on the podcast about empagliflozin, some of the new agents might actually even be superior to other agents in terms of showing a benefit for cardiovascular outcomes. So it'll be interesting to see how these studies trickle their way into guidelines and whether they ultimately affect the way we recommend second line prescribing. But I agree with you for now, I will probably prescribe a DPP-4 inhibitor over a sulfonylurea. And I find that this evidence sort of strengthens that decision, mm -hmm. if not as, if it's not wholly conclusive. Mm -hmm. Okay, why don't I uh, wrap up and summarize basically this observational study showed that DPP-4 inhibitors were associated with lower mortality and fewer hypoglycemic episodes than sulfonylureas as second-line treatment for patients with type 2 diabetes. Great, thanks. Okay, so let's move on to our good stuff segment. Rena, tell me about something uh, short and sweet that caught your attention from the world of medicine. Okay, so I think this, um, what I'm about to share has probably caught the attention of most Canadians working in healthcare already, which is the recent appointment of Dr. Jane Philpott as Canada's new Minister of Health. And this is, um, I believe, the first time that a physician has been named to the post since 1935, which is surprising because it seems intuitive that you would want someone to hold a position like that who has some frontline experience. So um, I'm, I'm hoping to share this CBC article with our listeners, and I think it is relevant outside even of a, a Canadian context because it does ask the question whether 
um, sort of leaders in government should have experience within the areas to which they've been assigned a portfolio. Okay, thanks, Rena. For my good stuff segment, uh, I want to recommend an article uh, that was published uh, in the Harvard News, and it was about a couple of studies on a related topic about the time costs of healthcare. So these studies found that in 2010, people in the United States spent 1.1 billion hours seeking health care for themselves or for loved ones, and that time was worth $52 billion. Uh, and one of the major points of these uh, scientists was that this cost is often unaccounted for in our analyses of health expenditures. So. The other thing I think that was interesting was that they were able to determine the average total visit time for a person seeking care for themselves. And the average visit time was 121 minutes, which included 37 minutes of travel time, 84 minutes in the clinic. And of those 84 minutes, people spent only 20 minutes with physicians. I think it raises an important point about how we account for cost. And this is one that we uh, often neglect to include in our analyses. Very interesting. Okay. Uh, thanks so much, Rena, for a great conversation. Thanks, Amal. I hope we can do it again soon. Me too. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash theroundstable. Follow us on Twitter at roundstable. Or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. Thanks for listening. 